Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Early on in the pandemic, we did a show about how the food supply chain has been impacted by the coronavirus. More than two months later, how has the nation's food system changed and adapted? Coming up, we'll talk with a reporter from Civil Eats, a nonprofit news source that focuses on the American food system. We'll also hear from a farm family in Madison, Connecticut, which uh, found that the pandemic has brought new attention to local farmers. First, it's been a week since restaurants in Connecticut have been able to serve customers for outdoor dining only. We're going to talk to two local chefs who own restaurants, but we also want to hear from you. Have you gone out since Connecticut permitted outdoor dining, or are you still hesitant? Atheist Veggie told us on Twitter, for now, with the numbers looking like they're very low for Connecticut, uh, that means the COVID-19 cases, maybe... But if we see increases in the short term, definitely not. How do you feel? Join the conversation. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Our first guest joining us by phone today is Chef Chris Prosperi, who's the owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the show. Hey, Lucy. So uh, first of all, how how are you doing? Is it is it too early to talk to a chef these days? <laughs> <laughs> no, not these days. These days, it seems like I'm up earlier and earlier every day. <laughs> so tell us, May twentieth was the reopening. Before that day, how were you in your restaurant? Your staff surviving? Yeah, it was hard. You know, it was definitely a new normal for us. And you know, but we got through it. We did okay. Um, we didn't open for takeout, but we did partner with a local grocery store, which is literally across the street from us. And we did our, like whatever our favorite meals were for our customers, we served them over there, uh, sort of a heat and go kind of thing. Um, and then last uh, Wednesday, we opened and brought back, you know, we didn't bring back everyone because we want to do it slowly. So we brought back a few staff and we're starting to see people come back slowly. So what did you have to do, Chris, to get ready for this outdoor dining only, uh, again, this uh, guideline or rule from the state? That's the only way uh, you can serve uh, customers now. And so walk us through the process. Oh, yeah. And I mean, everyone is doing it differently. But this is for all restaurants. There's a huge learning curve because this is not how we usually do things. You know, a lot of times because we've been around so long, you know, you're greeted by my staff with a hug because, you know, some customers have been dining with us for 20 years. And, you know, and that's totally different. And, you know, when we bring you to a table and the whole thing starts. But now we're, you know, we're doing online ordering. So you order on your smartphone or if you don't have one, you can call us and we'll put it in for you. Um, Yeah, it's totally different. We've decided to do um, single use everything. So we're not even serving on plates or, you know, our glassware yet. We're doing all disposables, you know, just to start because, I think the most important thing is we want to do it slowly and, and that's what we're seeing you know and and it's a learning curve like even just the technology of it that's not you know we go up and tell you about our specials and tell you about our food now it's you're looking at it on a screen 
So that whole thing we had to learn. And believe me, we're still learning. So again, uh, people want to come to Metro Beasts and eat outside. You're lucky in this new location that you're in. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, a house uh, in Simsbury. There's a lot of outdoor space to, uh, again, put tables at least six feet apart. And so once they order, your uh, your staff brings the food out in a paper bag, and then they're getting plasticware to eat, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's totally different, right? It's not the way we usually do things. But again, we want to make sure, I think the most important thing is safety of our guests, safety of our of our family, which are our employees, you know, and, and, and doing it right. And yeah, we have the greatest thing about the new location is we have so much space. I mean, we have, uh, I don't even know, a quarter acre front lawn where people are, you know, bringing blankets and eating. They're not even eating on tables. They're bringing big blankets and their whole family's coming and the kids are running around. So it seems like it's working out, but again, we're not seeing huge crowds. Um, you know, it's, it's a few people at a time. I think people are taking it slow and, and really taking their time and seeing how it goes. You've been in the restaurant business for a long time, Chris. Uh, tell us again, you said that you've been able to bring back some staff, but when you, there was uh, no outdoor dining, how many people were actually with you uh, inside Metro Beast uh, again working? Yeah, it was just my core people, mm-hmm. just three of us, you know, and that's it, you know, and that was because and and we brought back a few more just because we decided to feed hospitals and first responders because, you know, we, we were basically start going stir crazy and we needed something to do. And, you know, my partner, Courtney, was like, you know what, these are the people that are going to get us through this. And we really need to tell them, you know, we're appreciative of everything they're doing. And we want to make sure they're still going to work every day because we're not, you know. And so we were bringing, you know, I think we ended up feeding thousands of, of frontline workers. So we did have a little bit of staff for that. And now we're brought back a few more. But, yeah, we're doing it slowly, you know, and we're making sure staff and because like I said they're our family we're making sure they're okay we're giving them food you know we give them money if they need it but it seems like they're all doing okay and we're all in this like holding pattern now waiting to see how it goes and as things open up again then we'll maybe be able to bring back more Again, you're hearing Chris Prosperi. He's the chef owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. As we talk about how restaurants in Connecticut have had uh, to adapt to the shutdown, but also now that they're able to have outdoor dining. Not all restaurants in Connecticut have that ability, but we wanted to talk with some uh, local chefs about what they've experienced. You can join us too. Are you ready to go to your local restaurant if they're able to do outdoor dining? How do you feel despite still being in this pandemic? The number to join, 888. 888- 720-9677 or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, for another perspective, uh, joining us now is Chef Billy Grant. He's owner of Brico in West Hartford and Brico Trattoria in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Uh, Chef Billy Grant, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So we heard a little bit from Chris Prosperi. Uh, tell us about uh, your experience uh, again with two of your establishments. Uh, what was it like when there was the shutdown? How did you keep going? Well, you know, a lot of similar stuff as Chris. Um, so it was a lot of adapting. And um, I decided to stay open for takeout because I had a, a few core people in the front um, of the house. My general manager and her husband have a business that they had to shut down in Hartford. And so th- they were stayed with me with their two uh, teenage young adult children. And I had a few cooks that decided not to collect unemployment. Mm-hmm. So I was able to stay open and, and operate through curbside. So in the early stages of it, um, 
we were doing quite well with the with the curbside. I mean, well as could be expected. Um, and we were also providing meals on Sundays for a family meal for unemployed uh, restaurant employees. So that that the early stages seemed to, seemed to have go pretty good for us. At least we were we weren't losing money each week, which was a good thing. Now that you're reopened uh, May twentieth again, just the uh, last week, uh, what has it been like? What did you have to do ahead of time to get ready, and how have your customers responded, Billy? Yeah, I mean, it was an adjustment period. Of course, it was like trying to learn how to how to walk again, having customers after I think it was like you know nine or ten weeks, um, because we. With the takeout, we created a, a system, and we were organized, and we took X amount of orders every 15 minutes, so we didn't have crowds of people waiting outside. We wanted their food to be ready as they got here. Um, you know, just getting plates back in into the restaurant, because we are using plates. We, You know, the menus are single-use, but we are using plates and glassware. Um, and then, you know, the goal is obviously to keep everybody safe. So there's no salt and pepper on the table. There's no olive oil on the table. There's nothing like that. No drink menus on the table. But we are using menus. And I only have six tables to work with. So we're spread out, you know, we spread them out on the patio. So they're six feet apart. And servers are all wearing gloves and masks. And the few servers, I think I have three servers working with me. They've been servers that were with me from the start, helping me with takeout. So it's been a small group of us. And like Chris said, the demand has been not crazy. You know, the phone hasn't been ringing off the hook for those tables. So people are starting to trickle in and and it's happening slowly. Again, you can join us here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Lydia is calling in from Ansonia. Lydia, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. What a great topic. Um, So here's my comment. I want people to stop focusing and pressuring the government to open these businesses. I think the pressure needs needs to be on the um, the uh, the government, the, the what do you call them, our representatives, to get money to the businesses, the restaurants, so they can be solvent, pay their bills, and pay their employees while we have a longer, a sustained closing. Just you can't put a price on a person's life. You know what I'm saying? So we've already seen that when we open up, then there's, like, people hanging out and partying and getting drunk. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's practicing safety. You know what I'm saying? And then people get sick again. You can't put a price on human life for that. Mm. Well, Lydia, thank um, you. Go ahead, quickly. Yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing that I really, really want people to think about the long run instead of it in the short run. I want, to think, think, I want them to think about if we stay closed for another two or three months, we'll save more lives. People won't get sick. Mm-hmm. And you're also saving money in the long run because people aren't going to the hospital and the hospitals mm-hmm. aren't spending all this money, blah, blah, blah. I'm very passionate about this. I can tell, Lydia, and we do appreciate you calling in to share uh, your concerns and your comments about the reopening. Uh, I wanted to hear from uh, Chris Presberry first from Metro Beast. Uh, uh, Lydia mentioned that uh, people shouldn't be feeling pressured to reopen, but talk through as someone who's been in the restaurant industry, this is something that you've probably never experienced before. (laughs) Do you feel like the state has pressuring business owners or you've had enough time to think about uh, ways uh, to keep going and thinking about how to reopen safely? Yeah, no, I think Billy said it too. You know, it's not like 
people are rushing back in and we're seeing huge crowds. So, you know, she can rest easy that it's not like there's, I mean, at least that's what we're not seeing that. Um, yeah, this is totally new for us. I don't, yeah, I don't feel pressured at all. You know, we're not, we're not serving inside. We're not seeing hundreds of people, you know, you know, we, we have a little more space than Billy, but we, we're, we're probably doing the same amount of people because we're not seeing like these large groups of people coming in and it, it is going slow because I think people are cautious. So I think we are doing it right. And they're opening the valve very slowly, right? I don't think they're uh, or like telling us that we have to be open and we have to go. I think we're just, we're doing it the right way. Take our time, do it right. And we're learning, like Billy said, we're learning on the fly here. I mean, I had never thought in a million years that I would tell people they have to put their order in online or even single use. I mean, we, we like I said, and I'm sure Billy's the same way. We hug our some of our customers when we yeah. see them because he's been around as long, longer than I have. You know, these people become your family and now you're like in gloves and masks and, you know, and, and six feet apart. Mm. Billy, uh, well, tell me what you think of uh, the caller's uh, comments and how uh, you felt as the state has uh, slowly started yeah. to reopen. So I don't really feel pressured as far as um, the state to reopen. However, um, of course, I, I, I agree with her in safety and, and don't want to lose any. I mean, my mom is 70 and the, the last thing in the world was I, I would want was for my mom to get sick. And mm-hmm. and I only know one person. He actually was a chef, Jerry Reveron, who got COVID and, and sadly passed. Um, so it's tragic. I get that. Um, but I do agree with her as far as help from the government for small businesses, because what's going to happen is I can only sustain like this for so long. My goal is to try not to lose money each week, because once you start losing money, it goes really fast. And to to keep the doors open on a business that's losing money each week or each month it, it is extremely difficult. Um, like for example, the PPP money that is out there that I think expires in a couple of weeks. I'm, you know, my partners are dealing with the logistics of that, my brothers. But once that PPP money is gone, that's helping us with rent and helping us with some of the payroll that we have now, things are going to get even more sticky. So without that, I will be losing money mm-hmm. with bringing people in just to do a few of the patio tables because the takeout has definitely definitely slipped down because there's so many people now that are doing, you know, um, the patio dining and what, and what have you. So it's, it's a, it's definitely a, a two part situation is keeping everybody safe. I get that. And I do agree, but without the exist, the assistance from the government to help us keep our doors open, it is going to be very difficult for some restaurants to stay open. And I happen to be super, super fortunate because I've been around a long time and knock on wood, Brico has, has been, you know, kind of an institution after 25 years in West Hartford. But I don't know that, that many of these restaurants are going to be able to stay open long term without, without furthering some of that PPP loan money, you know, perhaps extending it. So phase two starts uh, June 20th, if again, the number of hospitalizations continues to decrease and some other metrics that the, the state is following. And so I'm, I'm wondering what that will look like for you, uh, Billy, in terms of uh, possibly having, again, indoor dining, but still, I think the capacity will still be half of what you're used to? Right. So if I get this correctly, 
if if I can have a half people inside and they're still spaced out, I even believe that I will be able to space them better in, inside the restaurant than I will outside. My tables are definitely six feet apart outside, but the but the walking hallway space or the space between tables for the servers to walk and for people to exit um, might even be, be better spacing inside. So I'm hoping that if I have can use a few tables inside that, um, you know, maybe I can increase sales a little bit and still keep people safe. Chris Prosperi, how about you? And when we look forward to the June 20th, uh, again, where you are located in Simsbury, the Ensign House, uh, there's interesting uh, of, uh, layout with the different rooms and how the tables are spaced. I mean, will it be more challenging to do indoor versus outdoor? Yeah, I, I mean, again, like Billy said, safety is the, so much more important than all of this. And, uh, you know, yeah, we haven't made a decision yet. We do have a ton of space that we could, you know, like Billy said, put tons of space people between the tables. But like I said, we haven't made a decision yet. And I don't even know if there's going to be the demand because, I mean, we're going to just play it by ear because right now we're not seeing that kind of demand yet. You know, I think people are taking it very cautiously and we'll see. And and if we see the demand, maybe we'll open at a limited time. But if not, I think we'll just keep it with outside for now and then we'll see how it goes. And I think we're going to just listen to our customers and see what they want. You can join I our conversation. Go ahead, Billy. Yeah, I agree with that as far as the demand goes as well. Yeah. You yeah. can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Uh, first, let's listen to uh, Chris calling from Sandy Hook. Um, excuse me. Hi. Um, I um, did uh, go out to dinner um, on Friday, went to a restaurant. I don't want to name it because um, I didn't have a great experience, and I'm hoping that they're going to kind of get it together. Um but there were a few things that concerned me. Um, the fact that there was no hand sanitizer at the entrance to the dining area, which was outdoors, of course. Um, I was also concerned because the um, there were lots of tables on the patio. Um, they were definitely not six feet apart. Uh, there was there was only um, one other party there when I arrived, so um, I felt comfortable sitting down far away from them. Um, when the other party left, I was really um, upset by the fact that um, cleaning the table was done really haphazardly. Um, The owner, who was also the waiter, came out with a cloth and um, just quickly cleaned um, the area of the table where the people were sitting, didn't even clean the whole table, didn't use any type of um, spray um, disinfectant or, you know, anything like that so it was it was not um not a great experience and i did talk with the owner um and explain things to him and hopefully he listened to me and and will do something about it Mm. well chris thank you for sharing your experience uh, here on where we live also uh tate's calling from west hartford tate go ahead Hi, thanks a lot. Um, first and foremost, I just want to say uh, thanks to Chef Billy Grant, big fan of his restaurant. I haven't had a chance to dine at Metro Beast yet, but uh look forward to being able to do that in the future, hopefully. Um, my question, um, I guess, is more about the evolution of the business and how things might change in the industry. I'm curious to know what your take is on how um, food trucks might impact the scene in terms of brick-and-mortar restaurants maybe looking to launch food trucks um, both from the benefit of the access to outdoor dining it provides, but also in terms of 
a means of offsetting overhead attached to their current brick and mortars in terms of being able to offer a new secondary satellite location at a, at a lower overhead. Thank you, Tate, for your question. Uh, Chef Billy Grant. Um, so, yeah, I have definitely thought a lot about the food truck thing. Um, actually, my general manager, um, Debbie Revere and Ken Revere, had, have toasted. And so they are in talks of, like, you know, explaining the food truck business. So I think the food truck uh, is going to be a thing, a good thing for the future as outdoor dining starts to open up and, and spacing at parks and things like that, you know. Um, as far as, you know, the the future of the industry, I, I, I'm definitely having a lot of anxiety because, you know, like Chris, I've been around a long time. And for me, you know, my my bones was on just having great food and that was it. And now it seems so much more to do than just that, you know, even, even with social media, I'm struggling so hard just to keep up with social, with social media, just to put out the proper content and, you know, without adding additional expense and hiring people to do so. So, you know, as far as doing satellite locations, I I think that's definitely a consideration as well, but all this is going to add added cost, you know, and I'm right now, I think, maybe Chris is feeling the same thing. I'm, I'm struggling just to watch cost because I don't know how the return is going to be on, on any, any investment that I do. Chris Prosperi. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. I mean, the last thing we can do right now is spend money because of the uncertainty. So yeah, we're, we're just as cautious, you know, you have to watch every penny. And I mean, I guess the future is going to be what it is, but you know, I, I'm a firm believer and maybe I'm just being over optimistic that this is, like a lot of things in our lives, you know, this too will end eventually, right? There'll be a vaccine, there'll be better treatment, and, you know, we'll be on to hopefully the next thing. And, you know, hopefully everyone stays safe until it happens. But, yeah, I think we'll get back to some normal again. Don't you think eventually, like, event the, as soon as, like, there's a vaccine, I mean, maybe it's going to take a year, maybe it's going to take a little longer, maybe it's going to be a little shorter, but eventually we'll go back to the way we were. You know, maybe there'll be certain changes maybe we're going to learn stuff in here that will adapt you know like the online order maybe people will be able to like pre-order their drink in their car and they'll be sitting there waiting when they get in i don't know we'll see what the future brings but yes i think this will pass eventually it'll take a long time but it will we'll get back to some kind of normalcy soon and chef billy grant go ahead if i can comment on that one thing i think that is going to take a while to get all the way back is I, I think that habits have been changed. And if there's a silver lining here and it's very difficult to find it, but, um, I, I, I'm astonished every day that I go home and, you know, sometimes I, I try to get out just a little bit early, which is, you know, right around eight o'clock and, and you can, you see so many people still out walking, families, walking, siblings, riding bikes, even if I get out for a few minutes in the daytime. So, I think habits are changing and I don't know that habits that I think a lot of that is a great thing. I think people are learning how to cook. I think they're enjoying cooking at home. Um, I, so I think habits may change and I don't know that the demand for eating in restaurants is going to come back the same way that it was. Um, maybe some of the habit changing is, is good for families and, and, and good mm-hmm. for keeping people together. Um, and, you know, maybe it won't be so good for restaurants, but the, the global part of that, maybe that maybe that's a good thing. And I think people will, will cook more at home and they'll also learn, hey, maybe it's affordable to go and bottle a bottle, buy a bottle of wine and, and have a fri- Friday evening at home and cook versus going out. I mean, 
that's not what I'm looking forward to because, of course, you know, we want the restaurants one day to be full and bustling and busy again. But I don't see that happening anytime soon, even even when they first get a vaccine. You know, there's there's thoughts that a lot of people won't take the vaccine. And once the vaccine comes, how long is it going to take to to do the vaccine for the entire country? Uh, real quick, uh, before uh, we go, uh, Chef Billy Grant, both you and Chris Prosperi said that uh, you don't anticipate demand is going to come back uh, real strong, at least in the near future. What does that mean for your staff? Uh, so many of them rely on the, on the tips they get. Yeah. Um, well, for, for me, I'm ag- agreed. I think the service staff is, is nervous and scared and has a lot of anxiety but also in the current state right now, it's it's kind of actually matching because like Chris and I both said, the demand really isn't there. But let's mm-hmm. let's say the demand really was there. I would have a hard time getting people to come back to work because there's many of my people that are making more money collecting than they did making, mm-hmm. you know, making working for me, especially some of the people in the kitchen with, I think they're getting an additional $600 or something from the government. So I, I think that's, that's an issue that I'm I'm okay with because I want them to be okay and I want them to, you know, be able to take care of their bills and take care of their families. But eventually at some point, um, if the demand was there really right now, I wouldn't even be able to get enough people to come back to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can't expect them to come back to work if, if the tips, because, you know, servers do well when the restaurant's busy. So if you bring in a server and they're used to having a four or five table section and now they have a three table section and they're only turning the tables, you know, once or twice, they're just not making the same money they are when when the restaurant's busy and, and, and popping. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but I really do appreciate uh, Chef Billy Grant, owner of Brico in West Hartford and Brico Trattoria in Glastonbury for joining us here on Where We Live. Also, Chef Chris Prosperi, owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury. Uh, thank you both for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk to a journalist who covers the food system and agriculture for civil eats. More than two months into the pandemic, how has the food system in the U.S. adapted and changed? Are you trying to buy local more often? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Early on in the pandemic, we did a show about how the food supply chain was impacted by the coronavirus. More than two months later, how has America's food system changed and adapted? My next guest is joining us on Zoom. Her name is Lisa Held. She's senior policy reporter for Civil Eats. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Uh, you have said in, in your reporting, I believe, that the food distribution pathways in our country are rarely simple nor linear. What do you mean by that? How is food coming uh, to our grocery stores, to our restaurants, and why is it so fragmented? Yeah, um, it is very complicated. So I did a big story on the supply chain, and um, I think the takeaway is really things don't move from point A to point B. They kind of move from A to B, back to A, all of all over the place. You know, there's lots of processing and transport that forms these national and international webs, really. Um, and every step in that chain requires workers, which is why a lot of the supply chain has been 
affected um, by by COVID because those uh, facilities have to figure out how to keep operating while keeping workers safe. Um, and actually, you know, the supply chain is complicated and it's also extremely specialized and, and efficient. So a distributor that, you know, sends 100 restaurants exactly what they're going to sell each week, sends them no more, no less to minimize waste, maximize profit. Another distributor might be only supplying grocery stores. So there's kind of a lot of complicated pathways and they're all very specialized. So I think what COVID has shown us is when when something breaks down, it can it can be a little bit complicated to redirect things because mm-hmm. they're so complicated. So let's break that down further. I'm sure our listeners have seen headlines about uh, possible meat shortages. So when we talk about when certain parts of this web break down, let's focus on uh, the meat processing plants and what happens uh, when some of them have shut down, which is the case now. Yeah, so meat has definitely been, um, I would say, the hardest hit part of the, the food system. And, you know, a lot of that is because the commodity meat system in the country is so consolidated. So, for example, you know, the 13 largest um, meat packing plants process about 60% of the red meat in this country. So when you think about that, that's a lot of meat coming from very few places. Um, And, you know, those places have been hit particularly hard because they employ thousands of workers Mm -hmm in really close quarters in, in order to keep up this rapid pace of production. Some of, some of them are processing, say, 20,000 hogs per day. So that requires a lot of people standing very close together. Um, social distancing is pretty much impossible. Um, and, and a lot of the big meatpacking companies that we've found in our reporting and, and other reporters have found is that um, the companies were really slow to implement protective measures. By the time they started providing PPE, installing dividers, there were already massive outbreaks. Um, and so then some of those plants shut down. Most of them have reopened um, and, and things are kind of being processed, but there's still a big backlog. And, you know, one thing I do want to say about that, though, is, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on the fact that, um, this could lead to a meat shortage. And, mm-hmm. you know, what, what we've been finding is that that's really, it's more complicated than that. So, you know, there's, there is a little bit less meat being produced in, in April, 2019. Um, the red meat production in the country was down 15% compared to, or, I mean, in April, 2020 compared to April, 2019, it was down 15%. But from January to April, it was still slightly up. So it hasn't gone down that much where you're going to see a huge shortage. But, you know, maybe one plant that supplies a few grocery stores in one area, it's taking longer to get meat to that grocery store. So you might see a bare shelf, but that that shelf being empty for a brief period of time does not mean that there's not going to be enough mm-hmm. meat in the country. And there's a lot of meat in storage and there's a lot that's still being exported. Um, so it doesn't... You know, I sort of want to always make clear to people that while the system has been extremely impacted, that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be meat shortages in Mm -hmm. the country. 
So when we think about um, some of those slaughterhouses uh, that have gone out of business through the years because of of the big meat industry, uh, how has this pandemic put more focus on these smaller processing uh, plants or uh, facilities? And are they seeing a, a bigger business? And is this helping them now? Yeah, this is this is an interesting question because um, I just did a big story on this, and it's it's incredible because you know over the last fifty years, um, these smaller processing plants and slaughterhouses around the country have been put out of business really by the big companies because they're they can produce so much cheap meat uh, very efficiently, and all of a sudden those big plants are are you know having outbreaks and are shutting down and are reduced capacity and the small ones have really showed that they are incredibly resilient in the face of the crisis um they are smaller so they've been it's been easier for them to kind of quickly implement protective measures for their workers and um they just have fewer workers you know if if you have 10 people working in a in a um facility it's easier to spread them out than it is if you have a thousand um and so they have been, they've been seeing incredible, um, jumps in demand for this local or, you know, sort of niche meat that is outside of the commodity system. But they're struggling, they're now struggling to keep up with that demand because they're, because people are turning to them, um, for this meat and there's not enough of them. And so, you know, long term, if, if that demand continues, there's going to be, sort of a, a need for more, there's always been a need for more infrastructure for these um, local meat producers. And I think that's becoming more apparent now. Mm. Uh, you're hearing again on Zoom, Lisa Held. She's senior policy reporter from Civil Eats as we talk about how uh, the American food system has changed or adapted uh, during this pandemic. Uh, if you have a question, you can join us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search where we live. Uh, Lisa, can we talk more about the workforce? I was uh, struck by this number I saw in a report from New American Economy Research Fund. Uh, more than or nearly four million immigrants make up more than one in five workers in the U.S. food sector. Can you walk us through the jobs they're doing and how um, are they being protected? Because again, uh, because of the uh, the highly contagiousness of this uh, this virus, uh, not just talking about meat plants, but the fact that you know what protections do they have uh, to keep themselves safe uh, to do this work that so many of us rely on? Yeah, it's it's a great question. There are the food system is really completely powered by um, immigrant labor. I. I don't have the numbers um, in front of me right now, but it is definitely the majority of the workers um, in the food system from farm workers to the workers in these meat uh, packing plants that we're talking about to restaurant workers. Um, it's, it's a, it's a huge, huge population. And, you know, it's, this population is particularly vulnerable to, um, to COVID-19 because for a few reasons, one, I mean, in the farm worker space, um, a lot of the labor is migrant labor. So there's a big influx um, this time of year into our country um, of workers on what's called H-2A visas to, to work on farms. And, you know, they're moving or they have to come here from other countries. So right now when, you know, we're all kind of sheltering in place and not moving around, um, they have to move around and that, you know, poses risks. And then... 
um, you know, they work for very low wages. They often live in um, housing at on-farm housing that is very um, consolidated and, you know, there's no space for social distancing. Um, very few have any paid time off if they get sick or um, health insurance. And, and so there's an incentive to keep working. And, um, you know, there's we've had some reporting on um, farm workers and then also on meatpacking workers and, and companies have really failed at protecting them a lot of the time. Um, I think now there's more being done to provide, um, you know, PPE and keep people further apart. And, but I think probably a lot more needs to be done. And, um, you know, we actually, there's a story today on Civil East. I didn't write it, so I can't take any credit for it. And I haven't actually read it yet. It just went up, but on the undocumented restaurant workers that hold, you know, that restaurant industry together, you, you were just talking in the whole first part of the show about, um, the restaurant workforce and how they've been affected. And, um, I think, that's going to be, you know, they're not, they, they don't have access to any of the benefits that the rest of, um, the rest of the workers do, like, for instance, the um, rises in unemployment benefits that the federal government has um, enacted or the stimulus payments, you know, if you're undocumented, none of that is going to help you. Mm. Uh, you mentioned something I just wanted to to highlight. Uh, you talked about uh, um, a lot of the migrant workforce that come here on seasonal visas. They're coming now or already have been here. We think about uh, people might be worried about meat, but the idea that in the next few months we're talking about key vegetables and fruits that are coming into season and you need people to be able to pick them and pack them. If people get sick, we could we see uh, shortages down the line, Lisa? Um, I think it's, to, I mean, I guess the answer is yes, but it's there. I haven't seen any um, evidence yet that that mm-hmm. has happened or, or definitely will happen. Um, I think that a lot of journalists are focusing on the fact that those workers, that it's really important to um, protect those workers now so that that doesn't happen mm-hmm. um, later. And then one real uh, quick question before we head to break, uh, Lisa, when we talk about uh, food safety in this country, again, uh, people are worried about uh, this virus being on things that they may buy or on food. Uh, what do we know? What does science tell us about uh, you know that, that fear? So, so far, um, there's no evidence that coronavirus is spread through food. So the CDC, if you, you know, you can actually get direct from the CDC information. It's, you know, what they say is they need more evidence. We need more science on it. But so far, there's no evidence that um, it spreads via food. So, you know, what what we're really worried about is workers in these um, processing plants getting sick is the spread of the disease among the people who are preparing and packing and, um, you know, harvesting our food, not so much getting sick from the food. So far, that seems like it's not a real risk. Again, uh, you're hearing Lisa Held. She's senior policy writer at civileats.com. Uh, uh, you're going to stay with us, but we hope to talk to a local farmer coming up in the next segment about what she and her family have seen uh, during the pandemic. Uh, Lisa, before we hear from her uh, as we go to break, I'm wondering, um, 
through your reporting, are you seeing more interest across the country where people are seeking out local farms versus wanting to go to the grocery store? Yeah, I've talked to farmers all over the country about this, and they're seeing a lot of demand. Um, farmers that are normally selling to farmers markets and doing community-supported agriculture, CSAs, um, are seeing really, really big jumps in demand. Um, I think it's it's easy for them to you know provide food in a socially distanced way because they're doing contactless deliveries or pickup of csa boxes um farmers markets are outside so people can spread themselves out um and you know i think people also feel like it's they feel a little bit of confidence knowing that just one other person you know this one farm uh handled their food it's a direct line and they don't have to think about um, that whole long chain, like where, where has this food come from? And, um, so yeah, I actually, I talked to one, um, one owner of a organic grocery store in Connecticut in Stanford, Mike's organic. And he said that, um, CSA membership that, that he sells the increased 300% in the past few months. So wow. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk with, again, this farm a family in Madison, Connecticut, right after the break. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, on with us via Zoom is Lisa Held. She's senior policy reporter at Civil Eats, and you can read some of her work. We'll tweet out com- a couple of her links at civileats.com. But joining us now on the phone is a local farmer. Stephanie Lesnick is owner of Fieldhouse Farms in Madison, Connecticut. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, we heard uh, Lisa say before the break that uh, farm local farms are seeing a huge interest now, especially during the pandemic. Tell me what you've noticed uh, as the country uh, had shut down for two months and just slowly starting uh, to reopen. Well, we've definitely seen a tremendous increase in the support of our farm in Madison. We are finding um, a lot of new people coming to the farm, discovering or maybe rediscovering their local farm vendors. Um, People have the benefit right now um, of time. And so for them to be able to make the trips to their dairy farm or their produce farm and, you know, make day trips out of it and visit those farms and kind of develop or reestablish relationships with their farmers is a little, a little ray of sunshine that's come out of this um, situation that we're in. But I've absolutely seen you know, new visitors to the farm, visitors that we don't get to see often who are now a little bit more regular in their visits. Um, so, yeah, we're definitely mm-hmm. seeing an uptick. Now, at the start of the pandemic, uh, Stephanie, we heard about people uh, going to the grocery store and unfortunately hoarding food. People were really panicked. Did you see that kind of activity where people were coming to your farm and saying, what do you have? We'll buy it. Oh, absolutely. And I had in the first several weeks, of this situation, I had people offering and asking to buy my entire flock of chickens. Um, people asking me to hatch chickens for them. Everybody wanted to have a backyard coop. And anybody who knows me knows that I think everyone should have a backyard coop. So, um, and I'm always encouraging people. So it was a moment where I wasn't able to help people. There were no chicks available. You know, I wasn't able to do that for people, but I can sell them the eggs. And so, you know, I have a list 
30 people long, rotating every day of people who are looking for eggs. And that was initially because they weren't available. Mm-hmm. Um, but now people are, you know, as I mentioned before, have they, have, they've rediscovered how good a farm fresh egg is. And even though you can get them in their grocer, they'd now prefer to come to the farm. Mm. A lot of people go to their local farm. They might sign up for a CSA. How does your farm operate, uh, Stephanie, in terms of, of what's uh, in season and how you get it uh, to local residents? So we operate directly off the farm. We have tried the CSA model. It didn't work for us. Um, we're a small operation. It's, it's mainly us, us being myself and my husband and our four kids. Um, then we have intermittent uh, college and high school age students who work on the farm during vacation time. But by and large, we're a small operation. Um, we, we always raise and produce the things that we like. Our model is a family homestead. So we raise and produce the things that we like and we share the abundance with our community. So if I, if, if nobody in my family eats a product, we don't raise it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so we have things that we raise them in excess and then we sell to our community. We don't do a lot of advertising. It tends to be a lot of people um, in the Madison or, you know, local community who come to us and, um, it's very much a snapshot in time. To, so today, after the heat of yesterday, well, the radishes aren't that great today, but with a couple cool days and a little bit of rain, they're going to be great by mm-hmm. Sunday. So maybe no radishes today, but, you know, radishes by the weekend. Mm-hmm. I also wanted, Stephanie, I also wanted to ask you, I understand your farm also raises other livestock. And so I'm wondering, when we were talking with Lisa Held earlier about uh, small uh, meat processors in the country actually uh, seeing a lot more business, what has been your experience when you send uh, an animal or animals uh, to get uh, slaughtered and processed? Uh, Has there been a longer wait for you? Yeah, Lucy, there has. um, When this uh, back in the middle of March, I started to look at different trends in the meat market nationwide and seeing how um, the poultry market and the beef market was being affected. And I said to my husband, we should we should take a cow up um, and have it processed. And so I made the appointment. It took a little bit longer than I normally would have uh, taken to get an appointment. Uh, maybe I had to wait a couple weeks for it. So the, I think it was the end of April, sent the cow <clears throat> And immediately got it back to the farm, sold it. Most of it's gone. You know, within a week or two, most of it is gone. Um, it's mm. been sold. My husband has no stakes for the grill because <laughs> they've been sold, um, and which is contrary to our model because it's usually us first and then everybody else. But um, but so I said, oh, all right. Well, it wasn't two days after I got the cow back. I said, all right, I need to send another one. And the first available appointment was January 11th. Mm. So, you know, in speaking with the people at the processing plant, you know, obviously they are seeing more people um, trying to get their animals processed to have things available on a smaller scale, but they also are working with fewer staff. So all of the things that Lisa mentioned um, are very, very true. And, and, you know, I was listening to her and I was nodding my head saying, yes, that's exactly what it is. There are fewer people operating. They're operating a little less efficiently. Um, but at the end of the day, as a provider to my community, I have people who come to the farm and ask me point blank, who brought the cow up? 
This person brought the cow up. Who, who mm-hmm. processed the cow? This person did. Who brought the cow back? This person did. Okay. At most, three people have touched this cow. And that makes them feel really good. And they're looking at the person who did, you know, I didn't process the animal. But, you know, they, they know that I'm the one who touched it. Mm-hmm. And I'm the one who brought it there. I'm the one who, you know, raised it. I'm the one who brought it back to the farm. And that provides people a lot of comfort right now. Yeah. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, we did get a comment on Facebook. Uh, Lydia writes that her family is low income. She does get food donations of meat, but not so much uh, other healthy food. And she wants to know how they can receive free, fresh uh, vegetables and fruit. Uh, because you're in Connecticut, uh, Stephanie, uh, any tips for her where she could go? I know that in the past, we have, when we have an abundance that we can't sell, we do send it to our community dining room or our food, um, food pantry in Madison. I don't know that other farmers work under that model. Um, so I don't, I, I'm not a huge resource to help answer Linda's question, but, um, but I do, I know that that's what we do when we have an abundance that is perishable and we can't sell it. Um, again, our model for our family is, you know, to try to, keep everything um, at its, the peak of its harvest. So if we're picking tomatoes and we have an abundance, well, we're not ever going to throw them away. We're going to can them and freeze them and, and, mm. and do the things that we have to do so that we have them all winter. Um, so, you know, there's not oftentimes that we have such an abundance that we're giving it away, but that is something that we try to do. Mm. Um, and we've worked with people in our community who can help us get them, get those things to the um, food pantry in Madison. Well, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Stephanie Lesnick, again, owner of Fieldhouse Farms in Madison, Connecticut. I also want to thank Lisa Held, senior policy reporter from Civil Eats, for joining us today on the show. Again, we'll tweet out and share on Facebook some of the stories that she's written about the American food system. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>